So the Torah has 613 commandments that cover a range of areas of our life. Some involve things that are very common. Some things involve things that are uncommon. There are commandments about how to treat each other. Many commandments on how to treat each other. Commandments of civil law. If there's a civil dispute, financial disputes, how to resolve it. There are commandments about Shabbat observance to rest on the seventh day. There are many commandments involving various Jewish holidays. There are commandments of agricultural laws, mostly involving farmers in the land of Israel. Certain things they have to do when they farm or they cannot do when they farm or gifts that they have to give from the, from the produce. There are family laws, laws of marriage, of divorce, of who we can marry, who we cannot. There are laws of what we can eat, kosher laws, and much, much, much more, many, many different laws of the Torah. And the laws of the Torah can be divided into various groupings, and uh, they have been, <laughs> the Talmud or the Mishnah has 63 sections um, of law. Uh, Maimonides later divides laws into 14 sections, the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, divides it into four sections. So they, they can be divided into various sections. So one important section, uh, so there are, now there are many commandments um, that involve sacrifices, a whole series of commandments that involve sacrifices. There are commandments that involve other parts of the temple service, all of which, of course, no longer apply today now that we don't have a temple, the temple's no longer standing, and it's been almost 2,000 years since the temple was destroyed. And they will not come back until we rebuild the temple, which um, for right now we cannot do so. We had a class a few weeks ago about why not. Now, one important section of Judaism or important section of Jewish law that is no longer in practice is Tumah and Tahara. The Mishnah, which I mentioned a moment ago, is split into 63 sections. Those sections are organized into six starim, six orders, or six general groups. One of those six groups is Tahara, that speaks just about the laws of Tumah and Tahara. So this is, and it, it's actually the largest of the sections of the Mishnah. So it's an extremely large body of Jewish law. Maybe about 20% of our oral tradition involves the laws of Tumah and Tahara. Yet the laws of Tumah and Tahara are no longer practiced, mostly, and that's why we're not very familiar with them. What is Tumah and Tahara? So the word Tumah is often translated as impurity, uncleanliness, well, the word tahara is often translated as purity or cleanliness. Now, the truth is that the rules of Tumah and Tara are entirely ritualistic. They're rituals. They have nothing to do with purity or cleanliness. So what we use the term purity, it's not really purity. It's a ritual kind of purity that has nothing to do with how dirty it is or how clean it is. It's a ritualistic purity um, based on the rules that the Torah gives us, or a ritualistic impurity based on the rules that the Torah gives us. So therefore, better than using the words cleanliness or purity, which implies some sort of dirt or lack of dirt, um, it's probably better that we use the words tumah and tahara, 
since there is no accurate English translation for those words. I'm going to try to use a little bit of both. I'm going to use the words Tumma and Tahara, and I'm going to translate them into ritual purity and ritual impurity, just so that you don't get confused between Tumma and Tahara, which one is which. So what exactly are they? So Tumma is a ritualistic state that a person or an item can be in. A person or a thing. The thing can be food or furniture or a garment, clothing, or a utensil. All those things or people can become tame. When certain things happen to them, or they come in contact with other things that are Tameh, they become Tameh ritually impure as well. When someone is, or something is Tameh, they cannot enter the temple in Jerusalem. When the temple stood, they were unable to enter the temple while in a state of Tumah, of this ritual impurity. They're also forbidden from eating. Sacrificial, a person who is Tameh, is forbidden from eating sacrificial meat, meat of the sacrifices, or eating truma. Truma was um, a special gift that was given from produce to a Kohen, and a number of other holy foods that a person who is Tameh, who is ritually impure, is forbidden from eating. An item that is Tameh cannot be brought into the temple, and if sacrificial meat or other holy foods become Tameh, then they are disqualified and forbidden to eat. Once Tameh, it disqualifies the sacrificial meat and makes it, uh, we have to just destroy it, it may no longer be used. So it mostly was relevant for sacrificial law, for entering the temple. Any person or item that is Tameh cannot enter the temple, cannot be used in temple service, cannot eat sacrificial meat, or other holy foods. That is tuma. Ta, tuma is the noun. Tameh is the adjective um, describing what a person is. The opposite of tuma is tahara. Tahara is a person or thing that is not in a state of tuma. You could call it ritually pure. A non-tame is something that is, has this ritual impurity or this ritual state that does not allow you to enter the temple or eat sacrificial meat. Tahara would be a ritual state that allows a person to enter the temple, eat sacrificial meat. They don't have a state of tuma. So a person who is tahor, tahor would be the adjective, tahara would be the noun. A person who is tahor would be able to enter the temple eat sacrificial meat, eat other holy foods. Now, to be clear, there are other limitations. Non-Kohens cannot enter certain areas in the temple. Um, even Kohens cannot enter certain areas in the temple. There are limits on holy foods. Who can eat it when? Um, but the state of Tuma disqualifies the individual from entering the temple or eating holy foods. Before we get to any rules, to get to any detail, I've just given you a very, very brief synopsis so far. Before we get into any details of Tuma and Tahara, it's important that our ways, as we said, are no longer kept. I want to quickly clarify the why. Why is someone or something in a state of Tuma forbidden from going or being brought into the temple? 
or a person tamay, forbidden from eating sacrificial meat or holy foods? Why is it that a uh, sacrificial or holy foods that become tamay are forbidden from being eaten? Why? So there is no clear reason for the laws of Tuma and Tahara. Though they are very detailed and very complicated, as we're going to see very soon, there is no rationale that we are aware of. The laws of Tuma and Tahara fall into the same category as laws like kosher that have no rationale. We know that laws of the Torah can be split generally into three groupings. There are what we call mishpatim, civil law or commonsensical laws, laws that are part of this functioning of a normal society. We need laws for a society to function, not to kill, not to steal. Um, how to treat each other, not to insult people. That's one of our commandments. People don't recognize that's important for the functioning of society. And then there are laws that are symbolic. Mitzvahs that God gave us, rituals God said to do to symbolize various things. Eat matzah on Passover to remember the Exodus. Don't eat chametz to remember the Exodus. Celebrate Passover. Keep Shabbat to remember how God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh day. And then we have laws that we have no rationale for them. God said, this is what you should do. I'm telling you to do it. Here's the details. Don't ask me why. Almost all the laws of kosher fall into this category. There's no rationale. Why some animals are kosher, some are not. We have to slaughter it in a particular way. Um, has to be prepared in a particular way, cannot eat milk, mix milk and meat. Um, all these laws have no rationale to them. God said, this is what I want you to do, so you're going to do it. So Tuma and Tahara fall into a very similar category. There is no rationale for them. They are what we call chukim, but we don't have a reason for them. God said to do it, and therefore we do. So these are among the laws that God commanded us without giving us a reason. So I haven't yet gone through the details of Tumen Tara. I've just given you a very brief overview. But let me open it to questions and see if there's any questions uh, before we get into the details. Okay, I guess everyone's waiting to hear the details. So let's go for it. <clears throat> so how does something become tummy? So there is quite a long list of how things become tummy. That list includes some of the following. Firstly, a dead body. Person who dies, their body or any body part is tummy. Secondly, another thing, a dead animal that was not slaughtered in accordance with Jewish law. So if it was slaughtered according to Jewish law, through the Shechita process, we did a class some time ago about the Shechita process, then it's not Tameh, but any other dead animal is automatically Tameh. A dead rodent is Tameh. Not all rodents, the Torah lists only eight rodents that become Tameh, what exactly they are may be debated, but, there are, but a dead rodent becomes tam, is Tameh as well. Another form of tuma, a man who has a seminal discharge, discharges semen, becomes tame, for that matter, a woman 
through intercourse, who also had semen enter her body, also becomes tummy. A woman who gets her menstrual cycle becomes tummy. A woman who gives birth becomes tame. And then there are a number of diseases that no longer that we no longer have that make a person tame tsarat, which is discussed at length in this week's parsha, certain marks on one's skin, or even one's clothing or one's home. Uh, a man had a disease that could have a disease called zav, um, which we believe it no longer exists, uh, though they are tame as well. So those are a number, or at least the main examples of how something becomes tame. Yes, Susan. Okay. Um, so the first thing you said is that dead things are tomaic, but then you specified dead animals not slaughtered by Jewish law, dead rodents. Um, dead humans was the first one. What, what did people. you say? Dead people. Oh, dead okay. people or any part of a human body is tummy. And then um, a woman who has semen inside of her also, which means that she had just engaged in sexual contact. Okay. So those are a number, the main examples, at least of Tuma. There are others as well. But as you can see, there are a number of different ways that a person can become tummy. So, or something can become tummy. Now, that Tuma can then be transferred. How does Tuma get transferred? So generally, Tuma is transferred by touching. When an item or a person touches something or someone that is tame, then they become tame too. So if a person touches a dead body, they become tame. They touch a dead rodent, a dead animal, another person who had a seminal discharge or semen enter them, the woman who had her menstrual cycle, um, that person would become tummy. They touched something, touched food. That food would become tummy. So in that way, they touched an item, a cup, sat on a chair. Their clothing they're wearing would become tummy. So tumma transfers um, the most common way to transfer it is through touch. Now, the tuma that gets transferred is not the same degree of tuma that is not the same degree of tuma often of the original item. A person um, that touches a dead body gets what's called first degree Tuma, or um, av hatuma in um, halachic terminology, a person who touches though a dead rodent or a dead animal only becomes a vlad hatuma, a second degree tuma. A person who touches another individual who is tame only gets a lower degree tuma, only gets a second degree tuma. If they touch another individual who already is a second degree tuma, then they don't become tame at all. 
items, clothing, or other items that touch a person that became Tamei get the same degree, generally the same degree of Tumah as the original individual. They don't go a, a, a degree lower. Food, though, does go a degree lower. So there's various rules as to when the Tumah is transferred, whether it transfers to first degree Tumah or it becomes second degree Tumah. If it touches something that was second degree Tumah, does it transfer and become second degree Tumah as well? Or in some scenarios, it does not become Tame at all. Um, I'm sorry. Um, what about like children? Can they become Tumah? Children become Tame, yes. So, children, any human can become Tame, yes. So if they like hug their mothers while their mothers are in their, have their periods, is that? They would become Tame, yes. So now, when a, now most Tumas, a person becomes Tamay through touching, there are some additional ways to become Tamay. With a dead body, human body, the rule is that anything that is under the same roof as that human body, in the same building, or under the same awning or tent as that human body, becomes Tamay as well. For example, if you would go into a uh, if you would go into a funeral home, and there are bodies in that funeral home, or you are at a funeral in the um, uh, and you're or you're at a funeral, um, you're sitting in the same building as the dead body, you would become tummy. Furthermore, anyone who goes over a grave or is even under the same roof as a grave would become tummy as well. There are some other unique rules. Azav, for example, which is a um, disease um, where men had a discharge, um, not semen, but a, some discharge, a white discharge that is uh, a, uh, sorry, a um, white discharge that wasn't, uh, that is of different texture and was a disease that existed in biblical times that our sages say no longer ex exist. The Zav would make something tamay even by sitting over it, even though they didn't touch it, just sitting on it, and it would be underneath what they're sitting, or um, just by moving something even without touching it. So people can become Tamei by coming in contact with anything else that is Tamei, um, mostly by touching for a dead body being in the same building even, or under the same roof, or being on top of their grave. Um, items can become Tamei. Food, for example, can become Tamei. However, in food, it can only become Tamei if it had become wet. So if you were to pick fruit or um, grains and never allow them to become wet, they can never become Tamei. Only once they come in contact with liquid, only then, even if later it was dried, only then can it become Tamei. Items made out of wood, metal, earthenware, clay, leather, woven materials such as clothing um, can all become tamay if they have a useful function. That's called a keli. If it has a useful function, it can become tamay. If it does not have a useful function, it cannot become tamay. When it comes to wood, wood only becomes tamay if it is a utensil that can hold something within it. 
but if it cannot hold something um, within it, it cannot hold liquid, um, it does not become tame. So a wooden chair would then not become tame, a metal chair would become tame. Items made of stone though, never become tame. So as you can see, these rules are somewhat complex. What can become tame? What items cannot become tame? Under what state they become tame? How the tuma transfers, as we mentioned, sometimes it transfers and the item, the thing that it transferred to becomes a lower degree impurity than the thing that it received the tuma from. Sometimes it remains, it is on an equal level of impurity. And so there are various rules and that's why there is a very large section of Jewish law that deals with these rules in very, very great detail. There are, there's a book called Kalim that deals with which utensils become tamay and which do not. A book called Ahalot that deals with what would be considered in the same building as a dead body and what would not, and so on. There are many different rules as to exactly what makes something tamay. So when something becomes tamay, how does it, which is the ritual impurity, how does it become tahor? How does it lose that tuma status? Again, tuma tahara are the nouns. A person is uh, the and tahor, tame, tahor are the adjectives that describe the individual of the item. Bart? Yes, uh, maybe you covered this, but uh, why do we have to be even focused on this if it's not applicable? <laughs> That's an excellent question. I'm going to get to that. Sure. Okay. Excellent question. Thank you. Well, uh, the, simply, this is a very important, big part of Judaism. Even if it's not applicable, it's still, you know, important to our history. I mean, this is something that we kept, and God willing, the temple will be rebuilt. We will keep it again. But we'll talk about this more in detail. Excellent question. So, if a person became tamei, how did they become tahor? So, there's a process for becoming tahor. For most forms of tuma, the person or the item must be placed in a mikveh to become tahor. Now, not everything can be placed in a mikveh. Food cannot be placed in a mikveh, doesn't help. Clay cannot be placed in a mikveh, but most other items and people can go into a mikveh. They become tahor after going to the mikveh. However, with one caveat, they have to wait until nightfall. So you go to the mikveh during the day, and then at nightfall, one becomes tahor. What is a mikveh? We've done a class previously about a mikveh. A mikveh is a pool of sitting water where the water has to arrive in the pool on its own without being carried or moved by humans. Also, a river or stream, or for that matter, the ocean, can theoretically also serve as a mikveh. So while immersing in the mikveh, the item or the person must touch the water entirely. In other words, a person, every single part of their body that's exposed must touch the waters of the mikveh. An item, every exposed part of the item must touch the waters of the mikveh. There cannot be anything dividing between themselves and the water, which means it must be thoroughly clean. 
Um, for a person to go to the mikvah, they must go through a process called chafifa, a cleansing process, a deep cleansing to make sure there is no dirt on them whatsoever that would div- separate between their skin and the waters of the mikvah. Now that works for most forms of tumah. There are some exceptions though. For a zav, the disease we said that no longer exists, one cannot go to a mikvah but must go to a stream or river. For someone that has come in contact with a dead body, direct contact with a dead body, either through touching it or being under the same roof as the dead body or going, going over a grave, um, they must count seven days. They must then be sprinkled on the third and seventh day with purifying water, mechata. The purifying water it must be made come from spring water, water from a spring, that is mixed with ashes of the para aduma, the red cow that was specially slaughtered and burned for this purpose. So you must mix these ashes of the red cow into spring water, sprinkle it on the individual or the item on the third day and on the seventh day, after which they go to mikveh and then at nightfall they are tahor, they are ritually pure. Don? Yes, Rabbi. Uh, when were these rules given to the Jews? Was it done while we were wandering in the desert? Yes, yes. There, most of these rules are found in this week's parsha. They're mentioned throughout the Torah, but most of them are found in this week's parsha. These this week's parshas, the two parshas this week. Then I the- can't help but ask: Where amongst the desert? especially since we know there's at least one Parsha where the people are complaining they have no water to drink, do they get a mikvah? That is an excellent question. Where do they find a mikvah in the desert? So the mikvah is mentioned many times in the Torah. They're told to go to the mikvah. Where do they get the mikvah? So really the question is, where do they get water from? So the Torah tells us that Moses hit a rock because they ran out of, they didn't have water. And so a couple of weeks after they left Egypt, um, they stopped at, at first at a couple of oases. Um, at one oasis, the water was bitter and Moses sweetened the water. But then they came to a place they had no water. This is in right after the Exodus, in the book of Exodus. And um, at that point, God told Moses to hit a rock. And he hit a rock and out came water. So the Talmud of the Medrash tells us that um, that rock continued to spew forth water Essentially, this stream flowed from the rock, and that rock traveled with them, whether they carried it or it moved on its own. Um, this miraculous rock traveled with them throughout the 40 years in the desert. Later, they ran out of water again at the very, very end of the, after Miriam's death at the very end of the 40 years. Um, the Midrash tells us that the rock after Miriam's death stopped giving water, stop producing water. And then Moses got himself into trouble when he tried getting the water to get the rock to give water again. Um, but that rock traveled with them. So they had this stream, stream that provided enough water for millions of people and their animals. So it must've been a pretty large stream. So they used that stream to, to create mikvahs or to water, um, to, to generate water that they used to fill the mikvahs as well. They could divert water from the stream to fill the big mikvahs and fill the mikvahs. Was there a particular tribe that was in charge of carrying and taking care of the rock? Not that we know of. It doesn't tell us that anyone carried the rock, so it may well have traveled on its own. 
Nah, it was a miraculous yeah. rock to start with, so Apparently, it would be surprising. Yeah. Thank you, Rabbi. Sure. So, today we no longer have a temple. We no longer eat sacrifices. We no longer have holy foods. And so, therefore, we no longer need to be tahar, to be ritually pure. And we can be tamay all the time. Now, the truth is that we are all tamay um, all the time. Because... Um, in order to become tahara, in order to become ritually pure, from tuma, from the tuma of coming in contact with the dead, you need to be sprinkled with water mixed with ashes of the red cow. We don't have the ashes of the red cow anymore. We have all come in contact with the dead. We've all been to funerals. We've all been to cemeteries. So we are all tummy, and we don't have the ability to become tahara right now. So we don't need to keep, we no, no longer keep these laws of Tuma and Tahara. It doesn't really matter because the temple's not standing anyway. We don't eat sacrificial meat. We don't have other holy foods anymore. And so the laws largely no longer apply. Now during temple period though, when people went to Jerusalem regularly, particularly for the festivals, and people lived in Jerusalem where the temple was just down the street, People would try to avoid becoming Tameh, would try to always be Tahar. Now, you did not have to um, always be Tahar. If you didn't want to go to the temple, you didn't want to eat sacrificial meat, you didn't have to be Tahar. But if you did want to go to the temple and people were required to do so three times a year for the festivals, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot, if you were a Kohen that wanted to serve in the temple, or you were living in Jerusalem and wanted to be able to offer your own sacrifice or visiting Jerusalem, you would want to be tahor. You would want to, you would want to be ritually pure. You, want, you would want to avoid being tummy. Many people living outside Jerusalem also tried to avoid becoming tummy. They would try to be tahor as much as possible. These people who generally were tahor were called chaverim. Chaver in Hebrew means friend, um, or maybe you could call it like a club, um, club members, uh, but they were called chaverim. These were people who during the temple period were careful to always be tahor and would avoid being tamay as much as possible. So living while avoiding tumah involved a very cumbersome and complex lifestyle. It meant never touching food or any item that may be tummy. Got to be careful whatever you touch. It meant never eating food produced by somebody who was tummy. Never purchasing food from anyone who may have been tummy. Only purchasing food or eating with fellow chaverim. You cannot sit down to dinner with somebody who may be tummy because then they'll touch the same plate that you're touching, the same serving dishes, and they'll make them tamay. Got to make sure whoever produced your food was tahor, was ritually pure. It also meant avoiding going to funerals, avoiding dead rodents, avoiding dead animals. We know Jerusalem was kept perfectly clean so that there were no rodents in Jerusalem. It was the cleanest ancient city. The ancient city of Jerusalem was entirely paved. I mean, that was unheard of in ancient times. And um, 
and the city had a no garbage policy. You were not allowed to drop no litter policy, no garbage on the street. You had to take your garbage outside the city. And it was those streets were swept every single day. And that way they avoided rodents. There were no rodents to be found in the city to avoid dead rodents. So a person had to avoid funerals, dead rodents, dead animals. It meant limiting sexual activity. They did get married, but they would limit their sexuality, um, avoid during festival periods when they were going into the temple. Um, even regularly, um, they were not very active sexually. And when they did, when they did have sexual activity, they would go to the mikveh the next morning straight away in order to be tahor. It meant having separate beds in one's home, chairs, dishes in the home for people who were tamay, when they were tamay, when they did, when a woman got her menstrual cycle, who kept these laws, or a couple did have um, sexual activity, it would be in a separate bed that would be their tummy bed so that they wouldn't have to, that they wouldn't make their regular bed tummy. So it was a very cumbersome lifestyle. It meant going to the mikveh fairly regularly. We have many descriptions from the Talmud, from the Midrashim, and even from non-Jewish sources about life under these rules of Tumah and Tahara. That was how people lived. We also know we, the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls that we found kept these rules, and they describe in great detail as kind of a commune um, where the, the people, they lived kind of on a commune near the Dead Sea over there. Um, and we have a lot of rules that they wrote for their own community, how they lived. And um, they describe in great detail the efforts they went to to ensure that everybody tried to be tahor as much as possible. Now, throughout the land of Israel, even till today, we have dug up dozens and dozens of mikvahs all across the land of Israel that were used by people to become tahor. The amazing thing about a mikvah is it's a hole in the ground that's usually then paved. Um, they would usually fill it with cement um, or stone or paved with stone um, to hold the water. And so um, the... Um, and so the mikvahs, and even when everything else collapses, mikvahs don't disappear. You can dig them up. They're great. They always survive um, archaeologically. So we have found dozens and dozens of mikvahs, particularly a number of mikvahs are in and around Jerusalem, all around Jerusalem, um, around the Temple Mount. If you go to the Davidson um, Center, right just south of the temple, there's a couple mikvahs there. There's in the old city, they dug up a couple mikvahs. Um, if you go just in the hills of Jerusalem, along uh, kind of the hills alongside Jerusalem, um, all over there are ancient mikvahs um, that they used in ancient times. They're found in Masada, they're found in other areas, um, these ancient mikvahs um, that were used. Lewis? So, <clears throat> Rabbi, you're, you're suggesting that uh, the people in Yerushalayim had one set of rules to live by. Are you suggesting that people who lived in other cities like Safat and whatever, uh, they didn't practice these same uh, devout rules? Everyone practiced the rules of Tuma and Tower when they came to Jerusalem for this Thank festival. You. Everyone had to because they were going to go to the temple. Um, people in Jerusalem, in theory, didn't have to keep it, um, though many people did because if they wanted access to the temple or to eat sacrificial meat, they would need, need to be keeping it. 
throughout the land of Israel, there were chaverim. Chaverim were people who were um, committed. They would actually have kind of an oath or a um, um, initiation where they would kind of go through a ceremony where they would accept upon themselves to follow the rules of Tuma and Tara um, as much as possible. And these were people who kept the rules throughout. And these people, chaverim, lived throughout the land of Israel. Not everybody chose to be chaverim. It was a very cumbersome lifestyle that you had to take on. But many people um, were chaverim. In fact, another term that they used for chaver, for another term that they used were prushim. Prushim literally means those that are separated. Um, and interestingly, the term that Josephus uses um, in his book to describe the traditional Jews um, that believed in traditional Judaism um, is Pharisees. And Pharisees is certainly a Greek version of the word Prussian, right? The term for those that kept the laws of Tuma and Tahara. Why? Well, probably the scholars were the leaders of, the Jewish leaders were always scholars, right? That's how it's been throughout our history. Um, the rabbis are the Torah scholars and the scholars or the rabbis were all Prussian. They were all Haverim. They were all people who kept these laws. They would gen generally were people who had who, who were careful about these laws. So that's probably why Josephus refers to them as Prussian, as Pharisees. Thank you. Yeah, it, it seems to me, um, I'm always looking for reasons why, you know, there has to be reason. And so when I'm thinking about it, like for a woman not to engage in sexual activity um, closer to the time of her menstruation, it means that she's probably gonna be more fertile than when she does. Right. So you're, I think, and I think that's still practiced today among yes. a lot of Jews. Yes, yes. I'm going to get that in a moment. Yes, that is practiced. Okay. And also the cleanliness thing or with the mikvahs um, and also abstaining from sex is that people are less likely to get sexually transmitted diseases. Well, then there's other laws in Judaism that require um, sexual activity is limited to marriage, um, which yeah. also well, does the same thing. Yeah. And, um, and also too is um, that rodents and things like that, or Tomei, is that by keeping your place clean and the city clean also prevents a lot of other diseases too. I think you have a very good point. I would say that similar to the laws of kosher, where we don't believe that kosher is because of health, but there's no question that keeping kosher is healthier. I yeah. would say Tuma and Tahara, um, I don't believe we know a reason for it, but there's no question that keeping the laws of Tuma and Tara definitely increases our sanitation and made Jews a lot safer. Yeah. Uh, most, uh, most cities of pilgrimage, like Mecca, were known as centers of disease because people came from all over and they spread disease and people would die by pilgrimages because they were filled full of diseases. Um, the Jerusalem did not have diseases in the pilgrimage. And that was largely because of the steps people took, whether it was you know, no rodents, which tended to carry diseases, um, no dead animals, um, the, clean, the cleaning, and also people not touching each other, right? Today in the pandemic, we've gotten used to not touching other people. Um, when, um, when you kept the chaverim that kept the laws of Tuma and Tara, avoided touching people. No hugging, no shaking hands, there was no touching. You didn't touch other people unless you knew them to be tough. Mm -hmm. 
So there was a certain avoidance of touching. So, and that definitely would have helped, um, you know, avoid disease. So I think that could be, could be considered a additional benefit that came from these laws, but we don't believe that it fully explains these laws. Okay, thanks. I know we always search for reasons, it's human nature. Yes, we do. <laughs> okay. So today we have no temple. It really no longer matters if we're Tame or Tahar. Even if we wanted to be Tahar, as we mentioned, we cannot be since we have all come in contact with the dead. Um, whether going to funerals, going to cemeteries, and we don't have the ashes of the paraduma of the red cow that would be part of the process to make us tahar. There is, though, a single set of laws of Tuma and Tara that is still relevant. And that is a woman who is a nida, a woman who gets her menstrual cycle, or for that matter, spots, um, or a woman after childbirth, is not only tameh in the sense that she cannot enter the temple or eat sacrificial meat, but she's also forbidden from having any sexual relations until going to mikvah. So that rule still applies. And a woman who sees blood and has her menstrual cycle or has her, or after childbirth must um, count seven clean days and then must go to the mikvah before she is permitted to have any sexual interaction with her husband. So because these are the laws, the, that's the only group of laws of Tuma and Tahara that we do keep, um, the laws of Nida, it's called. Uh, we still build mikvahs today, mostly to be used by women um, for their Nida. And um, so other than, so that law does apply, those rules do apply. It's a very important part of Judaism today uh, because it means that most couples um, are, at least until menopause, um, are two weeks on and two weeks off usually, as long as a woman's getting her, reg her regular cycle. Today we have ways of um, adjusting it with medication, but uh, normally um, it impact, greatly impacts our family life. So those laws we do keep, um, the laws of Nida. But other than that, we don't keep any of the laws of Tuma and Tahara. None of them are really relevant today. And yet we still learn about it, as Bart pointed out earlier. We still learn about it. We still study it, not as much because it's not so relevant. That's why these are rules that most are not that familiar with. But it's still in the Torah. It's still there. And that's because we believe though most of the commandments of the Torah are no longer relevant. In fact, um, about two thirds of the 613 commandments no longer apply. They only applied to farmers in the land of Israel. If you're not a farmer, it doesn't apply. Um, they, don't, they only apply, they involve sacrifices, involve the temple, involve laws of Tuma and Tahara, involve the, the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council of Judaism, which we no longer have. So all these various laws um, no longer apply. It's about two thirds of the 613 commandments that no longer apply. Yet, those commandments still stand, even if we cannot actually fulfill them, we believe they still stand. And in fact, our sages say that by studying these commandments, that's how we fulfill them today. We can't do them, but we can still study them. And so God still wants us to continue studying. He wants us to still learn about them and understand them. They're still part of our Torah, part of the teachings that God gave us. And by studying them, by learning about them, God considers it as if we fulfilled them since we cannot otherwise fulfill them. We further believe that 
soon, very soon, the temple will be rebuilt. We don't know when, but when Moshiach comes, which we wait for every day, um, Moshiach, one of his roles would be to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And when he does, he will restore the, sacrif the sacrifices as commanded in the Torah. And when that happens, the laws of Tuma and Tara will return as well. And we will then be keeping those laws once again. So they're not relevant now, but they will be relevant, hopefully very soon when Moshiach comes. We still study it regardless. We believe it's a part of the Torah and it's important for us to study every part of the Torah. Um, God wants us to study all of it. And in a sense, it, God considers it as if we fulfill it when we study about it. However, Maimonides tells us that those laws of the Torah that no longer apply, which as we mentioned about two thirds of the 613 commandments, all those laws, though we cannot fulfill those laws, we can take life lessons from those laws. So we cannot actually follow the laws, but we should take life lessons from all the laws of the Torah that no longer apply. And so Maimonides, and he goes through many of the various laws, and he tells us the life lessons that we should be taking. He tells us, though we don't have the laws of Tuma and Tara, we have other spiritual impurities in our character and in our minds. Those are things that we are tempted to do that we should not be doing. Temptations that we have. Addictions that we have. We are drawn after all sorts of various things. People often think of addiction, they think of drugs or alcohol, but there are all sorts of other unhealthy addictions that people have. Perhaps the most common one today is addiction, addicted to their cell phones. You know, people can't put them down, right? Um, but there, there are very other, very, there are a number of unhealthy addictions or obsessions that people have. There are also unhealthy thoughts and ideas that torment us. And so we have to keep away from all those things. That is not the same as the ritual tumah that the Torah was speaking of, but we can use tumah as a metaphor for these things. And so we have to keep far away from them, not even touching them or going near them. A person has an unhealthy character trait, keep far, far away from it. An unhealthy addiction or obsession, keep far, far away from it. Don't go near it. Don't touch it. Unhealthy thoughts, keep far away from it. Don't even entertain them. But not only must we go far away from them, we also have to cleanse ourselves from it. Clean ourselves. Make ourselves tahor. How, do one, how does one clean themselves? So with the laws of Tumah and Tahara, if one is Tameh, they go to a mikveh. They immerse themselves in a mikveh and they become Tahor. Why does a pool, a mikveh pool, make a person Tahor? Again, we have no reason for it. it doesn't tell, we don't have a why. How does that work? How does the mikveh make? We don't know. But in our using it as a metaphor for our challenges in life, for our unhealthy character traits, our unhealthy addictions or obsessions, unhealthy thoughts and ideas. The mikveh, Maimonides says, can, serve, can be a metaphor for mei hada'at hatahor, the waters of pure knowledge, the waters of Torah. When we choose to, firstly, move away from the bad that we're doing, but then immerse ourselves in the waters of Torah, then that helps us break these unhealthy character 
break these addictions. When we are focused on Torah study and immerse ourselves in Torah study and spend time studying it, and it becomes a, not just time, but a focus of our lives. It becomes part of who we are, that we study Torah. That then helps us counter these impure character traits, these unhealthy addictions, these unhealthy thoughts. That way we are able to purify ourselves and become pure. So Tuma and Tara is a large, significant section of Judaism that existed when the temple that applied, when the temple stood. Most of it, except for the laws of Nida, of a woman who gets her menstrual cycle or childbirth, um, no longer apply. Almost all of it no longer applies. Yet we study it because it's part of the Torah that God gave us. And um, that studying in itself helps us, uh, or God considers it as if we've followed those commandments. And we can also use that concept of Tumantara as a metaphor for breaking our own unhealthy character traits and our own unhealthy addictions. Firstly, avoiding touching them, keeping far away from them, and then also immersing ourselves in the knowledge of Torah to help us overcome these challenges. So that's just a brief overview of Tuma and Tahara, ritual, the laws of ritual purity and impurity. Um, there's a lot more, as I mentioned earlier, it's a about 20% of Jewish law um, involves the laws of Tuma and Tara. There's a lot more on it, uh, but that's really a very, very brief synopsis of it.